Mac Fellow Music Clubbers, you are now tuned into a uh, the end of Discologist. After uh, almost 500 episodes or 500 episodes, uh, we are deciding to sort of call it quits for now. There's a lot of reasons for that, uh, but I talked about those last episode. Um, one thing that was kind of amazing as we got up to this point was we realized that there was a lot that we had not talked about. Uh, you would think. As much time as we spent uh, on these mics uh, in a basement or now over the internet, that uh, we would have covered everything that we possibly uh, even didn't want to, <laughs> uh, because we just would have ran out of stuff to talk about. But we didn't, uh, because music is is vast. Uh, people are are vast, uh, and uh, there's always something new to learn, um, which was one of the points of this entire show. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that uh, on episode 500, uh, but for now, what I will say uh, is that um, we, this these last two episodes, they weren't planned this way. Uh, they uh, We actually had something else planned for the final episode. We were going to have our friend um, Phil Cook back on. And um, because it's always fantastic to talk with Phil, but uh, something about this felt right. And the fact that it was three hours long uh, with just uh, myself, uh, Eduardo and Paul, um, who both represent various sort of stages and milestones in in this whole show, this whole nine year journey. And uh, so that is that is what we decided to to roll with. And um and we're arguably, I mean, we're talking about music that we didn't talk about. So, uh, spoiler, the first band we're going to talk about is Pavement. But uh, I think we're, we may be talking about a little bit, a little bit more than that. Uh, which was, that was the show, man. Um, it was always a little bit more. So, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll keep this short and uh, we'll just get to this episode and then, uh, and then I'll come back. Uh, talk to you at the back end of this and one last time for episode 500. Uh, so here you go. Uh, this is episode 499, the beginning of the end of Discologist Chunky Glasses, whatever you want to call it. Uh, talking with my uh, some of my best friends, Eduardo and Paul, about music one last time. Okay. It comes here, and it finishes here. Two men enter, one man Nearly a two-word review just said shit sandwich. I will roll the record up to the last man. That right there is a lot of Okay, so we... In almost 500 episodes, uh, Paul, you were there at the beginning. This is actually all your fault. Yeah. Um, mostly. Um, and then in water, you stepped in. I still can't believe there was a point in time when I was like uh, such an asshole that, uh, that you were, came over to my house and I was like, I don't know, maybe this will work out. You got to see. It's kind of it's kind of weird. It's kind of difficult. <laughs> and you got to you know, think. <laughs> and I remember you leaving after the first one. And it's the first one you did. And I don't even know what it was, but it was just like... 
<laughs> it was great. And I was like, holy shit. And you were like, yeah, yeah, I want to do this. And now it's some like 200 episodes, the 300 bulk of episodes the series, later. Dude. The bulk of the series. <laughs> yeah, the, the, bulk, the bulk of the series. It's so many fucking episodes. Uh, between us, we have talked about so much music um, in... You know, the site is going to be 10 years old in February. Podcast is coming up on nine. Uh, it, it's kind of staggering. But I, I realized as we were winding this down for now that amazingly there was shit that we didn't talk about. And I, I mean, look, we're not going to punk you with Led Zeppelin. <laughs> <laughs> Let it be known that Eduardo hates Led Zeppelin. Um, and, uh, and we're not going to talk about fish. <laughs> We're definitely not going to do that. Um, but, uh, you know, there's actually, in looking back over this stuff, what was weird for me was it was a lot of bands that actually meant something to us. And I'm still not quite clear why we didn't do talk about some of the bands that we're going to talk about today. But it, it was, it, you know, I, it was like, maybe it's because what is there to say? You know, we love these bands, so therefore, like, that, what is there to say? Or maybe it was just... Uh, got overlooked. Uh, a lot of them, uh, I know two of them are, well, all three of the bands right off the top of their, my head are, are not active anymore. So we're talking like legacy acts. Um, so maybe it's because they come up, I don't know, in like anniversary shit. And we've done our share of those, but, you know, for some reason, like what we're going to start off with, um, we never talked about, say, an anniversary of Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain by Pavement. Which Eduardo, I feel like this is a disservice because what, back to that original time you came over to the house, you, one of the first things, like, I think you might have been wearing like a Malcolmus shirt. That's entirely, that's you entirely are, possible. I own many Stephen <laughs> Malcolmus shirts. <laughs> you are, if you, if, if you know Eduardo, if he can work Stephen Malcolmus into a conversation, you will. Accurate, accurate. Like full stop. He's, no, he's, he's sometimes so, referred to as my boyfriend in, in my household. So. <laughs> so so we never talked about pavement and so that we're going to talk a little about pavement right now uh but to get into it i want to we're trying to balance this with with stuff you all know and we're trying to basically make a reason why you should be talking about bands like this and how we failed and stuff. But I want to play a little bit of a track right now. And this is, you know the song, uh, even if you aren't a Pavement fan, you, you it's it's ubiquitous. This is also, Paul, I, I realize I'm putting this together. This is going to be a lot of about the 90s. Yeah. Music, <laughs> which is, yeah, which is fucked up, right? We all grew up in the 90s. It's fucked up. But, but we're starting it off with something that I will say uh, is, for my money, looking back, the best of the 90s. Uh, this is Pavement Fit Your Hair. Darling, don't you go your hair do you think it's gonna make him change I'm just a boy with a new haircut and that's a pretty nice haircut charge you like a puzzle
So, uh, what year was that? Eduardo? So that was 1994. 94. So we're talking about a good bit of music in, in, around that time. What I remember back then is how, and we were immersed in like Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, like grunge was in full swing. And uh, there were a lot of like college rock bands that were that were really soft, like the Connells, <laughs> you know. And, and and along comes Pavement, and uh, even back then, like that song, they had been around for a couple albums, but that song cut through everything, and sort of said, like, look, this is how you're supposed to do it. I didn't realize that at the time. And looking back and, and revisiting all these albums recently, I can say they were absolutely the best band of the '90s. There's there's no comparison, but there's a lot of there's a lot of very good reasons for that that I want to talk about. Well, they kind of found a little they they found a different lane than most of what '90s like alt rock quote unquote was doing, right? And so I think um, what was kind of interesting about them is that they clearly had uh, they they cultivated in '94 they were still sort of cultivating like a bit of an air of mystery, you know? They had sort of come along. Um, driven, like fueled by zine success back at a time when that was a thing. Um, you didn't know who was in the band because there were just these mysterious like seven inches and uh, and records would appear. They'd been signed to Drag City. They went to Matador. Um, you know, the, the lead person in the band was identified as SM. There was some guy named Spiral Stairs. Um, you know, it just wasn't clear at all who these guys were, what they were about. And they had this really catchy song that was full of words and kind of clever and a sort of a fun video that was like artsy, but didn't look like they were trying too hard. And suddenly they were in like 120 minute nation um, and had gone from, from, you know, really not being um, a very musically inclined band. There's a lot of like noise and sort of uh, uh, sort of like the, the edgier side of Sonic youth is, is kind of very audible in their early work as are like the swell maps in the fall and suddenly what comes out is this just very polished, like well-read uh, upper middle class guy using a lot of words that you don't norm normally hear in songs and kind of laying the thing bare about the nature of kind of commercial success and its relationship to aesthetics and how bands talk about it. And it was just kind of a fun, like meta everything. And it wasn't like anything else yeah. that was out there at the time. Well, and, and it was meta in the sense too, that like he was – the commentary on that was obvious, and that was a lot of what was going on. Um, you know, I saw somebody describe this music as slackadaisical, <laughs> and and uh, you know the commentary was going on, but like it sits right in the pocket of like Velvet Underground, Sonic Youth, and the Birds. It, it is it is the, the songwriting is so perfect. No matter how messy they got. there's And there's this other fascinating thing, too, which is sort of like it's never clear if they're an East Coast or a West Coast band. Like, I think they sort of, you know, they were they were um, Spiral and Malcolmus are California guys. Gary Young, who was originally in the band, in the band was a California guy. Crooked Rain, when it was reissued, got like an L.A. Desert's Origins uh, sort of tag added onto it. But it was recorded in New York by Bryce Goggin, who would go on to do a bunch of other stuff. Um, and they were clearly chummy with the Matador folks. They had hung out with Berman and, uh, the Royal trucks and lived in, you know, uh, Jersey city or Trenton or something like that. I forget, I forget actually where they lived in Jersey, but, uh, you know, they kind of managed to sort of stay 
in that trebly space, that trebly jangly space that can be a little velvety, a little birds-ish, while also having that kind of 90s guitar fuzz that um, I believe Gerald Cosloy from Matador said, like, Crooked Rain was the ship that launched a thousand Weezers because of that fuzzy guitar and the high-pitched harmonies. (laughs) Oh, that's sad. (laughs) It's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. Um, I guess especially so for Weezer. Uh, but even even there, you know, it's it's kind of like, you know, cut your hair comes to define the band, but that's not... Uh, and I mentioned that, you know, early on, they were really kind of noisy and just kids sort of fucking around on instruments and being kind of bratty. Um, as their songcraft develops, there's this whole other like sad sort of stony, mournful, elegiac version of Pavement that comes out in songs like Grounded and that you hear a lot on Brighten the Corners and Terror Twilight, which are sort of more abstract things centered around Stephen Malcolm's like really unique approach to um, to songwriting and his like quest to put as many words into songs that have never been used in songs before is kind of what it seems like his lifetime goal is. And what you saw on those later albums too is though, is, is, I, I believe they were on a major label at one point. And they, they, it became more polished, Sir, like sonically. Yes. I, I I remember it might have been Wowie Zowie or uh, uh, maybe the album after, but I remember listening to it with a friend and being like, "Pavement sold out." Oh, that was <laughs> that was sad. definitely not Wowie Zowie. That, that was, was right in the corners, probably. Corners, yeah, <laughs> right in the corners, yeah. <clears throat> and it was and it was because they sounded so clean at that point. I think Sebado had a had a similar journey, and they're they're another band that is in that vein. That is, uh, I don't think is impactful. I think, you know, when we talk about Pavement, we have to acknowledge that, uh, you know, they are one of America's greatest bands. Um, you know, that discussion is always up in the air. We talk about the dead a lot, but um, there's not a lot going forward past that '60s '70s era bands that slip into that. And pavement is one of them, for and, sure. And you know, in sort of in real time for me, I'll be I'll be curious to hear because I don't think I know this. I don't know your story about this with Paul, but as it was happening, kind of in real time, you know, I saw pavement in uh, in like ninety four and ninety five, maybe I might have seen them in ninety six or something like that. And then post Wowie Zowie, I was sort of getting into other like Wowie Zowie was sort of weird, and I didn't quite hang with it at the time. Um, cause it was sort of more experimental and kind of about sort of having fun in the studio and being deliberately sloppy. Um, and I was getting into like bluegrass and jazz and other stuff. And so pavement didn't really, they sort of faded from my consciousness for a couple of years until like 98 or 99 when they showed up on that HBO show reverb. And there was, there was an episode that I just happened to catch one night and I was like, oh my God, is this pavement? Like, what have they been doing for the last three or four years? This sounds fucking great. And that was probably a month before they broke up again. So I didn't, I didn't get to see kind of latter period pavement until the reunion. But, um, but, but even you know their their career as it was happening for me even was like sort of challenging enough that at a time when you had to decide to spend seventeen ninety nine to get a CD, or you had to know someone who bought it so you could tape it off of them, like it wasn't necessarily my my priority as I was trying to like backfill jazz and other stuff, and so. Um, so I have a little bit of like a sense of like, uh, not regret exactly, but just this feeling of like, man, I just assumed, you know, that I'd be able to see pavement for years to come, um, every fall that they would come through and play at the nine thirty club. And, and that clearly did not happen. Huh, huh. Instead you got them at Virgin Fest. <laughs> so, <laughs> which so, is a fun show. 
Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. Uh, I can't remember. Was LCD sound system on that bill as well? I, I believe they. Yes, were. that was the LCD sound yeah. system year, and then the next year was the uh, TV on the radio year, right? Yeah, yeah, indeed. So, so Paul, you, you're you're a proponent of the '90s. Yeah, like that. That is like squarely your wheelhouse. Even though we found out uh, another thing. Well, we did talk about it a little bit. Uh, we we were we've been talking about two entirely different Poe albums for the past decade. That which is hilarious. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I didn't even know the second one existed, and you didn't know the first yeah. one existed. Well, no, I, I knew the, um, the single off the first one because that was on the radio constantly. But right, Angry Johnny. Yeah. Um, so how did pavement pavement fit into your like '90s experience with all these other bands that you were? Well, in? actually, the, the interesting thing is that pavement didn't fit into my '90s experience. Like, I'm a I'm a big pavement fan now, but. And this, I, this will probably make a little bit more sense when we talk about one of the other bands we're going to talk about later. Um, in the 90s, I was in a, a pretty rural town uh, without a lot of uh, music access. No bands came through Hemet. I can assure you of that. Um, and so I mostly listened to Radio Alternative. And in college, I branched out a little bit more, but it didn't really hit pavement. I started getting into pavement when I was living in New York for law school. And in the second and third years of law school, I started branching out in New York. And that was right when the um, like the post 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 punk uh, third wave or whatever we're, we're calling like it. The these meet days. me in the bathroom. It stuff. was all the, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. As TV on the radio, like when yeah. they were putting out their EP, their first EPs then. So I was getting into that stuff. And in 2002, that's when Slanted and Enchanted Lux and Redux was put out. Uh, and I was like, man, I've heard a lot about pavement. I've heard a couple of tracks when I was downloading stuff and looking around the, the web. So I just decided I'll go pick up that album. And I just wore it out. Like, I was like, how the hell did this happen in what, 1992? And I just, it never even came across my radar. So then, of course, I picked up the rest of the albums um, and got into a lot of the, the deeper cuts. Uh, courtesy of a friend that I uh, that I met at an internship. She saw I was listening to, to Pavement. She's like, oh, yeah, have you heard a bunch of these other things? Um, and then got, you know, that's what got me into Silver Jews with American Water and stuff. And she just brought me all these burns. And was like, oh, here awesome. you go. This is my this is my album collection since you're into since you're into Pavement. Uh, bring me a bunch of blank CDs. I will uh, make sure that you've got an education now. So all that happening at the same time as what was going on in New York, uh, turn of the century right there was, uh, was what got me into pavement. And then the next wave of stuff too. And, and those, those, it was, it was re- such, I was going to say that the slanted and enchanted reissue too, like is one of those things where that's such a perfect two plus hours of music because the B sides from that time, like the, the opening of that second disc, which is front words and lions and, um, is just is is probably as good as anything that that the band uh, released on an album, and it's just it's just amazing to like like I think I think with them the B sides and you know there's diminishing returns as the band sort of lost interest in being a band and post post Wowie Zowie there's probably not as much happening there but those early days the Pacific Rim EP and then the watery domestic ones are just as good as anything else the band put out and um and they're short they're four or five songs long yeah and it's I mean it's still my favorite I mean it's one of those you never forget your first right I know most people will go straight to crooked rain crooked rain and it's a great album but I always want to 
kick it off with Summer Babe. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the gateway aspect of this is kind of wild because it definitely is a gateway into it. But I think a lot of people didn't didn't take the off ramp. Uh, I know I certainly didn't. I, I, you know, I knew the song, uh, maybe heard it a little in college, but like I graduated in 95 and it wasn't until about like 96 or 97 where like this all really clicked into me. But instead of look, looking at it and people telling me, say, like you said, you can go to Burma and you can Silver Jews, uh, a whole host of other bands that it was unclear whether they were influenced by Pavement or else they just came up together. For me, it was sort of a... Uh, uh, like, well, I've got pavement. I think that's about enough. <laughs> and, and I don't need to explore to, to the point that I, I've never heard uh, a Silver Jews album still. Really? You should listen to American Water. Which is a crime. I know. I know I should. I know I should. Um, uh, you know, Purple Mountains was the first Berman album that I listened to all the way through. And sadly, uh, it was because of the uh, situation surrounding that. But, it, but you know, th- they gave you access into this different alternative world because, look, by that point in the late 90s especially, you've got what, like uh, Silver Chair, you've got uh, uh, Candlebox, uh, what's some other, Puddle of Mud, Puddle of Mud was like Christian New Grunge. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, Jars you know, of But you've got all this stuff. If we're going that yeah, way. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, the the era of live wasn't in full swing. Well, I mean, and it all it all came crashing down once we got uh, to the rap new metal transition. That yeah. was the apotheosis of the form, I think. Yeah, and, and it forced you back to like I, I don't even know, maybe more like Weezer type stuff. Um, it didn't. It seemed that you pavement, and that, that was about the time they broke up. It seemed that they sort of faded from the the zeitgeist for a while there. Well, there was, there was, um, you know, Kevin, you and I were just talking about um, RoboCop as we were wont to do and how <laughs> um, the, you know, the, the remake um, from 2014 or whatever that was had tried to bring sort of some, some new ideas um, into play. But as you and I were talking, like it really didn't have the same sense of humor that the 1987 Verhoeven movie did. And I feel like there's a little bit of an analogy to pavement there, which is that a lot of, you know, once once that was clearly established as a lane that you could be in, um, it was easy to think like, oh, if I just do these two or three things, I'll be in the pavement lane. And if you don't bring, you know, if you just bring the spiral catchy songs and you don't have the complicated, you know, Malcolmus songs, you're sort of missing a part of it. If you're, if you're just clever, but, but not also a little bit vulnerable and a little bit, um, open, then you become, I don't know, Clem Snide or something like that. Like there's just, there's sort of like, there's a, there's a need to really kind of have all of those things in, in, in balance. And I think, I think, I think pavement did manage to do that kind of by accident, um, and probably some of it came from them not really being that good at being a band. You know, they sort of lived in different cities at a time before that was a common thing to do where you could just, you know, mail large audio files back and forth. They didn't really practice. Bob Nastanovich probably doesn't really play an instrument and is more interested in like horse <laughs> racing. Um, and so that I, I guess that sort of that served them well um, for for as long as they wanted to be around for. And I think the other piece is that is something that we talk about a lot with bands um, is that I think Malcolmus has talked about having this idea that like good bands exist for a while and then they don't. 
um, and their goal isn't to stay around forever, drive-by truckers. Um, it's, it's, <laughs> it's to, it's to realize when you've outrun your sort of creative, uh, you know, impulse and to say, okay, well, we're all going to go do something else now. And I think that kind of, that, that comfort with walking away really sort of made them a difficult, uh, band to deal with. I mean, I think, I think for, for managers, they were probably a little bit of a pain in the ass the, you know, famously the last, the, the, the. The, they played the first Coachella in 99, in 99. And I think Malcolmus just refused to sing. Like he just took the stage and like sort of played rotely, but refused to uh, <laughs> vocalize. Um. I, I, I want to explore that a little bit, but I also want to play a track because um, you picked another track, a little deeper track off of this um, that people might not know. Uh, and the name of the track is Give It A Day. Why, why this one? Well... I pick so I, I was thinking you know there's pavement is is really multifaceted and um, I mentioned like grounded and some of um, that kind of more like elegant Malcolm stuff that I find to be really interesting. Give it a day for me as an example of a of a lane they didn't try to occupy a lot, but essentially it's it's a story. It's a very difficult lyrical puzzle to sort out. I think the song is about the rise of Puritanism. And it likens that to a plague. And so it references um, increased Mather and Cotton Mather and the sort of uh, Salem witch trials. It talks about smallpox in the Sudan. And then it sort of pivots in the last verse to what sounds like a relationship thing where a guy and his companion are talking. And the closing line is sort of like, you know, your dad called you a slut. Why would he do that? Why did you, what did you do to make him think? And the song kind of ends with that unstated question. And so I've always taken it to mean that the speaker of the song is telling you about the rise of Puritanism and this this plague. And during the course of the song, he becomes infected. And the last line is him revealing that this kind of stuff is so nefarious that just because your dad called you a slut, now I have to figure out if I agree with that or not, because there must have been something there. And like the element of doubt and of judgmentalism is introduced. And you can also love the song without thinking any of that. But I, I particularly, right. that is, that is my, well, my dissertation on well, giving it a day. You've thought about it a little bit, I guess. <laughs> I've spent, I've, I've, been, I, I've been working at this one for uh, about 15 years now. Yeah, and that's where I landed. Yeah, okay, okay. Well, here's Give It A Day uh, from Paper. This is off uh, Wowie's Alley? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wowie's Alley. Right. Cotton, he was just so oblivious to all that. Look to it in every pew They look to him for guidance Just like eyeless lambs Awaiting that old kebab stand The skeptics form The nation's born Want to have a cotton's tree But increase had them out To them and burn Not open fire So the word spread Just like the smallpox In the Sudan Situations, eyes are eyes and teeth, the teeth won't mind a rotten enemy. 
What year? Wally Zowie was what year? So it was 95 or 96, um, I think. This was, this is off, this is a B-side from that era off of the Pacific Trim EP, which which was like a sort of a collector's, uh, you know, uh, lifetime uh, search uh, many, many years ago. Um, and this is one of those weird things that sort of came out. Pavement sort of, you know, didn't really do the the normal band thing well. So sometimes they would just come out with these like random EPs that collected all these great songs. And this was one of those weird like import only, I think, or uh, there was a cover on it of this catchy number, I Love Perth, which is also on the Wowie Zowie reissue. Um, and sometimes they would put stuff out David Berman did this too. Like he put out Silver Jew stuff and people who were, who thought they were in the Silver Jews were like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know there was an album coming out. <laughs> right, right, right. So um, Pacific I, Trim was, was, was a very Malcolmus led session. And I think that's where the sort of the, the, the precision and the tightness of that number comes from. Yeah. And, and that brings me to something I wonder about this band. You know, you talk about them um, sort of in reverence because like you love pavement. Um, but but we all uh, over a decade have uh, we understand uh, PR speak from what for, and and I feel pavement is is one of those things, and especially if you balance it against Malcolm's output going forward, is one of those things where it was a successful uh, casting of this band as slackers, as sloppy, as as like a mess, barely hanging on. When in fact, like you hear something like that, or if you go back to any of their stuff, really, it it's clear how much of a handle Malkmus has on this stuff, and and how how it is so much just pure determination to doing like a good song on on the level of like like Brill building stuff, like just using different song sounds and arrangements and stuff. But there's there's never a point for me in hearing this work where it's like, oh yeah, this is, uh, this is punk as fuck, for example. You know, it's like, no, this is, this is like, this is what, this is what skill is. There's, there's a, I think there is something to be said about maybe the band's technical proficiency, because I think it sort of worked very well for the way they constructed songs. Um, but I also feel like, um, as someone who's followed Malk's solo career after that quite a bit, and I've really enjoyed it. Like, I love it when the members of his new band, the Jicks, um, uh, shit all over pavement, which they do often. <laughs> like, they've sort of said, like, uh, like after the 2010 reunion tour and when the Jicks toured, I think it was Joanna, the bassist, who was like, well, he's been playing pavement songs all summer, so this is just a way for him to stretch a little bit when he has to play Jicks songs. <laughs> <laughs> or I feel like I feel like when I saw when I saw them on the Sparkle Hard tour, and they were doing a pavement cover in the encore, and they had like two or three false starts, and someone up there, maybe Mike Clark, was like, "Wow, this really is just like hearing a pavement song live. You're really you're getting the full experience here as we keep fucking this up." Well, <laughs> so. yeah, and, and that's what I wonder about. You know, there's a difference between a live band and a studio band and stuff, and I feel like. You know, sometimes uh, bands feel they have to take it out on the road, and maybe that was the case. I I don't know. I kind of like to think it was because uh, there is such a um, and almost to the point that I'm not as big a Malcolm's fan as you are, Ed. That's because That's nobody hard, can be. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, but but there is. Um, I find his stuff so uh, nigh perfect that it becomes less interesting to me. Um, I, I don't, I can just pick anything out of it. I don't get 
uh, a dopamine hit from a whole body or a whole like lump of it at a time. I'm just like, oh, I just want the yeah. That's that's exactly what he does. Yeah, the, the there there was there was some element of there was a kind of precision and control that he wanted to have over his music that he wasn't going to get in pavement. And I think that's probably the key to sort of why there's why there's a Malcolm solo career, why some people really like it, and why some people really don't. Um, I, I I I do I do believe that um, that the sort of public record on this um, may you know it it makes it sound a little bit like um, he was he was not interested in carrying the band forward and in sort of having the band figure out how to how to give him the sound that he wanted and what he wanted was like if you listen to you know Pig Lib or Real Emotional Trash like those are those are proggy. Uh, long-winded, uh, fun guitar records um, that occupy a very different aesthetic than than, than pavement, and so um, you know all of that is in there. And a song like "Give It a Day" give you know it's it's a little bit of a hint of like what kind of uh, what what Malk would do if if given the the full reins, um, and even how studied that air of like indifference is. Right? I mean, he sort of is very good at kind of building vocal lines that sound like he is thinking about them as he's saying it. Like there's a studied quality to his kind of, Oh, I'm trying to fit too many syllables. It's not going to fit. Do I get to the end of the line? Ah, there we go. Right. So um, that's, but that's hard work. Yeah. But it's cool. That's real hard work. Something I've wondered about is, did he make that transition? Do you think, and this is especially for Eduardo since, you know, you're the scholar of Malcolm's here (laughs) because that lane wasn't open before. Like at the beginning of the early to mid nineties, he was operating with pavement in this very, as you said before, mysterious DIY fashion. And that was, it was a lane. It was a weird lane, but it was one you could operate in. And then the path was either you do that and you flame out and you don't have a band anymore, or you do that and you get picked up by a major label and you quote unquote sell out and you make your bones that way and then you don't have a band anymore and so he was kind of trying to every time it looked like they were going to hit really big they threw a curveball and he kept that going as long as he could and it seems like he through either you know happenstance or planning dissolved pavement right at the time when there was the opportunity for another lane where you could make the kind of stuff that he was making and make a career out of it. It wasn't going to be the biggest career, but you didn't have to sell out and you didn't have to stay sloppy and DIY. You actually had an ability to kind of ply the middle right there and still be indie-ish, you know? Yeah. I think, I think there was, um, I think, I think he, he, he is a, he is a good example of someone who has lived in that space that we've all have always known existed, which is somewhere between like Sonic Youth and the Grateful Dead there is a lot of music that can draw on both sides of that to, to become something. And, um, and I think, um, I think you're right. I think, I think there was, there was a little bit um, of an opening for him to, um, to uh, go out and sort of, you know, have a second career in music. I think Um, it it wasn't at all clear. I think, Um, you know, there's a great interview that he did with Dean Wareham a long time ago where they both sort of talk about, how they didn't necessarily always think they would be music lifers, but then became that. Um, so, so I think I think there's a there's there's something to what you're saying, Paul. I also think if you go back and you look at, um, there was a DVD release uh, called Slow Century. It's a documentary, um, and it came with like two full 
pavement concerts. One was the Brixton Academy um, from 99, I think, which is one of their last uh, shows, if not their final, final show. And his lack of interest in being on that stage is palpable. Um, you know, and there, so, so whatever it was, there just wasn't interest in his part uh, in, in staying in that. And maybe it's because he saw a future of playing festivals and playing, you know, cut your hair every night. And that just didn't, didn't really seem interesting to him. And and consider consider this too that like how um, around this time Wilco was coming up, which is another like vying for the title of, of greatest American band, modern uh, band, definitely. And for the longest time, uh, Jeff Tweedy rejected this type of stuff. Absolutely rejected it. But then come Ghost is Born, all of a sudden, holy shit, you sound like Pavement. You know, and and real and it, it it just comes in cycles, and it's not as good, I think, as the work as Malcolmus did, and which is say it's all good, but it's just it was very clearly like, oh, what have you been listening to, and oh, maybe maybe this does work, yeah, and it is well, 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 that's what that makes me think of is like when when a musician is sort of really ready to transcend the genre that that brought them, right, and so I think probably for Tweety for a long time it was really important to to have a lane that would get him on the cover of No Depression or something like that, right? And sort of stay true to the Uncle Tupelo and immediate post-Tupelo thing. And and at some point, he sort of was ready to just belong to music and not really be associated with a particular scene or culture, um, which, which I get. Like, labels and groups become tiresome after a while. And, and so, Mal- so Malk actually – I mean, I think Terra Twilight is actually – a you know goodbye letter. It's sort of a breakup album, and it's also a goodbye letter to the band. You know, there's there's a line on on there that's I you know I I I was getting tired of the best years of my life or something like that, which um, which you have to be a certain age to hear and sort of appreciate because if someone gave you the choice to go back to your twenties now, uh, you might you might do it. You'd probably think about it for a little while <laughs> because even though yeah. most of us probably had great years in our twenties, um, they are exhausting years, and it's possible to get tired of the best years of your life. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, it in a totally random turn of events, uh, the next band we're going to talk about is name checked by Pavement, <laughs> and and it's and it's and it's unclear to me uh, if it was. Definitely a slam, or if it is because because the way I consider Malcolm is, is he is a student of of pop. He is a student of of knowing how to write a good damn song, and uh, this band uh, can write some good damn songs. And really, out of any band we've ever talked about, I think gets the shortest shrift. Um, because they get lumped in with all this stuff just by way they came the time they came out. Also, their their willingness to uh acquiesce to 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 the vibe uh of that time but they they grew out of it a little bit uh so we're, we're gonna move on now i'm gonna play a song by this band uh you're gonna know exactly who this is and uh and maybe uh maybe you you don't hit stop <laughs> <laughs> stick with me yeah please please <laughs> Would you even care? And I feel 
Paul, what's the name of that band? Uh, I believe it's uh, Stone Temple Pilots. Yes, yes. Were, were they megastars back in 1992? Hell yeah, they were. Yeah. This is, um, for, your, for your 90s gene that, that, that has infected you, um, and for anybody out there who thinks they were too cool, uh, when an album like this dropped after Pearl Jam, after Nirvana, after all of that, uh, it it was literally like a nuclear bomb. Sex Type Thing was the first single, but then Plush came out, and then The Crow came out, and you know, uh, and and they these guys, Dean DeLeo, Robert DeLeo, uh, Eric Kreutz, and um, and Scott Weiland, like had some weird pop magic that put them outside i think of everything else going on even though when you hear the guitars there you hear everything there it's it's angsty it's it's weirdly like toxic masculinity uh just like hog grunge uh it's not as it's not as hard as alice in change which was a band that, that was a contender for this podcast for this episode because go back and listen to dirt holy shit like that movie that album is so heavy but stone temple pilots more than anybody in any of these bands i think showed this remarkable growth and and at the same time a proficiency in making just straight rock and roll at the end of the day that's what it is right yeah it definitely is and i I, just one point there i think you're absolutely right about uh the evolution particularly across the first three albums there which i think are the albums that we're really talking about today um but Let's not sell short the fact that on core, they got the radio to play a song called Dead and Bloated. (laughs) You look at the lyrics for that right now and the fact that there wasn't a whole lot going on musically there. I think that just shows how big they were and also a little something about 1992. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, but, you know, that album was all about – I mean, honestly, when that song came out and when when Sex Type Thing came out – it was sort of scary because they were doing it was it was really really we thought we were past hair metal and then here come these guys are putting glam back into grunge you know and you hear Wyland's voice even now and you, you you every single like grunge person or new grunge person after Stone Temple Pilots is copying Wyland like just full stop he his talent was so singular that he, I mean, you can't do this music any other way. Yeah. They, they, they had a different, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to like reflect back on the first time I probably saw the video for sex type thing. It was probably on headbangers ball and it was something that, you know, that was, that was living in a, in a kind of post, Metallica Megadeth lane, right? So like, so Pantera shows up in the early nineties and they sort of say, okay, there's a little bit more grime in your metal now. Um, And then, and then sex type thing comes out and here's a singer who's sort of like wearing lipstick, but not in a Cobain kind of way. He's not really talking about playing with gender the way, the way Cobain tried to. There's not a showy, like high kind of modulation that he does. Allah smells like teen spirit or something. It's sort of a low kind of baritone with just a different, a different mood. And it really felt like, you know, I think when, I think them and tool, 
when they kind of cut through the other sort of like top 10 hard rock MTV stuff, they just felt like different bands than the other ones that were in that space. Yeah, for sure. And and Tool is because they they were embracing like prog rock more than anybody yeah. else. And, and Tool is like to this day is like, they're so dark. Yeah. <laughs> There's none more dark. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the old question like, what's blacker than black? <laughs> um, but uh, the, the Leo brothers have such an ear for how to write. You know, we, we mentioned the birds earlier, how to write like these ringing chords and arrangements and put them together for this guy who while to be honest he's kind of a crooner yeah. and later later in his career he did a christmas album this straight like crooning um and and look he's passed away now because a lot of it basically was fueled by heroin and and drug abuse and uh and he was he was a very damaged uh dude a lot of that came out in this work but they they immediately gained success i think because people could look to them and they were like, hey, this looks like the rock and roll that I remember. You know, I'm not so sure about this whole these sweaters and shit <laughs> and, uh, and flannel. They, they weren't when they when they turned up, they weren't a band I was rooting for. Like I kind of saw them as like outsiders or as sort of like they uh, probably, you know, this. So this record also it also sounds a lot like a record which occupies a weird place in history, which is that one Anthrax record where they tried to go grunge. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it yeah. sounds a lot like this. What was that? Sound of White Noise. Sound of White Noise. Um, so so for some reason, you know, I was I had in mind like this idea of like, oh, the bands I should be rooting for right now are like Tad or something like that. You know, you should want the like second tier of Seattle bands to make it big or Mud Honey, right? Bands that sort of didn't get the same exposure as Nirvana and Soundgarden. And instead, along come Stone Temple Pilots. Um, and that Crow soundtrack song just, you know, there were probably like three killer singles off of that soundtrack, which that belongs, soundtrack was great. belongs on the shelf next to Judgment Night as like one of the great we, 90s soundtracks. Yeah. <laughs> we did actually cover the Crow soundtrack at one point because that was one of my Rocktober picks. Did we? Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I, did we do Judgment Night? I don't think so. I'm not sure. No, I, I don't think we ever did Judgment Night. We've talked about it a lot, like off mic. Uh, yeah, you know, by their second album... Uh, they, they are sort of starting to abandon a little bit of the grunge thing. They had a huge hit with Interstate Love Song. A plus, A plus which is song. Ju- just it's a great song. Right? Yeah. It's it, great song. Like, like anybody who looks back and is like, and, and the weirdest thing, the trick that I think they pulled was like, it wasn't that they sold out. It was that the, the people heard that and be like, well, of course. This is, I mean, they were already like from the, the rock and roll womb. They were sold out. Yeah. <laughs> and they were yeah. like, okay. And, and what they did, they did something really strange is that they used that to do what they wanted. Uh, you know, if you told me today somebody like Harry Styles is going to be fronting Stone Temple Pilots, I'd be like, yes. Like that's, that's the type of like pop craftsmanship that we're talking about. They were wearing this uniform that didn't quite fit like the under the, the core, if you will, of the music that they were making. Off that, you had uh, Vaseline, which is still um, uh, a rocking song. Big Empty was the song off the crow. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's just it's it's like hit after hit after hit on these albums. And then they get to their third album, which is Tiny Songs, uh, Tiny Music Songs from the Vatican Gift Shop. And this is where it starts to get kind of weird because there's a lot of really stripped down songs. They had had a stripped down song with Creep. Uh, well, an acoustic song, but it was more 
uh, it was arranged. Uh, art school, uh, art school girl is not an arrangement, really. It's just sort of raw. Uh, they keep a little of it, but there's this trick that just feels so fucking glam to me. There's no reverb on this album. <laughs> like the guitars are just straight flat into it. And then you have Wyland floating over top of this. Uh, the best example of this is one of their biggest hits off of this, which is Tripping on a Hole in a Paper Park. You felt because by that point they're superstars. Yeah, they're abs. They they are filling stadiums. Well, and I can say um, that it, I, at least in uh, in my corner of the universe, that was fairly controversial because everybody was was looking forward to the new Stone Temple Pilots album, and then Lady Picture Show comes on the it comes on yeah. the radio and you got all these yeah. all these guys just ready ready for the next uh purple or core saying what the hell is this um and it was not received well in some quarters um but uh then eventually it became it, that also became huge and i think it opened it up a little bit more which it also you know as as you said before, you can see the natural evolution of the band, but it's also kind of where you were past the crest of the grunge wave at that point. And the folks who wanted to continue to be relevant had to do something else. Um, I mean, Melancholy was released the year before that. And I think that everybody knew after that double album came out that you weren't, you weren't going back to uh, you know, to the to the earlier the earlier phases of the earlier phases of grunge, you hit the you hit max bloat at that point with max exposure, and you had to go somewhere different. Yeah, for sure. And and you know, with with this too, is, is that a lot of these bands were not getting uh, the airtime anymore. Right, right. It was hard to get Pearl Jam intentionally removed themselves. Yeah. I think. 
They might have done an unplugged around this time, but they intentionally were like, you know, were from out. the sort of commercial I, music I, sphere. You mean? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I don't have it up in front of me, but uh, I remember the the Pearl Jam album from that. Uh, and the reason we're not talking about Pearl Jam is because really, I think the only thing to talk about is Vitology. Everything else is like that. They, they were good at their jobs and they did the thing, but they keep doing their their thing. And Vitology was where they were like in this weird space that it didn't matter to them, so they made some pretty good art. Um, but nobody played it on the radio. <laughs> well, right. And radio itself was kind of, was on the precipice, right? So I can think of Interstate Summer Love Song as something that I probably heard um, involuntarily like five times a day, just from like being in a car and turning and turning on, you know, DC 101 or HFS or something. Um, and in hindsight, I would, I would, I would take that on the radio all the time now. Um there, it's interesting for me to think like the contrast you just drew, Kevin, to Alice in Chains to me feels like a really apt one for a bunch of reasons. Um, there's Stone Temple Pilots were better at at like building hits than Alice in Chains ever were. Like, I'd say more interested, yeah, in building yeah. hits. Jerry Jerry Cantrell is the guy behind Alice in Chains, and he and he is. Like the Delia brothers, he's a his talent besides being a great guitar player was he's a ridiculously talented arranger, right? Um, and they and they were just and you know the sort of tragedy there is that they were probably just getting to a point where through like Jar of Flies and other stuff they would get to really play around with that um, with those textures a little bit a little bit more. But I just feel like even you know even if I think about Dirt, which is a record that I love, like there's no song on it that. I would want to like um, put on at, you know, right before last call at my favorite dive bar and have everyone start singing it. Um, and I can think of like three Stone Temple Pilot songs that fit the bill for that. Yeah. I mean, it was, is a difference of, of, of the party or the after party, you know, and Stone Temple Pilots were the party. Yeah, there, there, there's they acknowledge a lot in the lyrics uh, Wyland's drug use, and a lot of it is about his struggles uh, with heroin and everything. But uh, it, it is not; it, it's done in a way where it's not really talking about repercussions. It's done in like a Motley Crue way, like like isn't it awesome that like that we can party this fucking hard, and like everybody is along for the ride. With Allison Chains, it was more like, oh man, like <laughs> the the world is going to end. Because we can't hold our shit together. Yeah, it's 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 also interesting to me to to think about how like when you get into some of the like um, when you get into Lane Staley's last couple of years and um, and and Scott Weiland's really bad years, like there's so much seediness there, and it just seems like incomprehensible to to the idea that like these were people who who ruled the pop world for at least a couple of months right and were able to parlay that into like right so they had they they all had like top 10 uh videos or songs on MTV at a time when that when that mattered and at a time when that would guarantee you at least probably two world tours or two international tours right um and so to think that like they end up in this sort of like I don't. I. I it's. A, I'm. I'm. I'm not making this point well, but it's almost like even now when I go back and I look at pictures of like the house that Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love lived in, I'm like, that looks like, looks like an okay neighborhood. Looks like an okay house. It doesn't look like the house that you would expect like 
like like Harry Styles today to live in, right? Who was sort of in the same place that that maybe a Kurt Cobain would have been in at the time. So I, I don't know what that says about the economics of the music industry and of pop success, but. Well, and, and also, well, I think it says a lot about the show business of it too. I think it says like a lot you, about you how much heroin costs. Yeah, <laughs> that's very, very. I mean, very Scott Weiland was like walking there. up multiple multiple flights of stairs to get to his right. He was like arrested in a stairwell, which means he was going to a building where the elevator didn't work. Right when you start doing that math, yeah. <laughs> like it's just yeah. kind of not. It's just weird to think of like someone very successful and very powerful today having you know having to sort of shuffle up to like the 23rd floor of a sort of abandoned tenement type building well and, and you think about this music versus say, pavement and what Malcolmus does like they're clearly operating on the same level of like expertise and talent of what they can do about uh writing the song and it it is and we know this just from history Fame can be toxic and people react to it in very different ways. Whereas Malcolmus maybe avoided, he dodged the bullet, right? You know, he didn't have all these people going, oh my God, you are the, the greatest new thing. Where as soon as this comes out and, and because they crafted it this way, these people are thrust into a, a world that maybe they just never wanted to be a part of, but now they're there and they're good at it and they're getting recognized for being good at it. And, and it, did some bad things to people. I want to I want to play another track from them uh, before we move on here um to show how the the crooner side of Wyland but like you don't think almost Laurel Canyon um vibe when you think about Stone Temple Pilots or any grunge band but they were the ones that kind of pulled it off and Wait, are you sneaking a Dawes song lo- in here now? <laughs> no, I'm ne- never <laughs> never. We are never talking about Dawes. Um, but uh, and this is a track off of, of uh, Tiny Music. It's called "And So I Know," and it's uh, it's actually quite lovely.
So, so that's smooth in a way um, that their other stuff, acoustic stuff, isn't. The grunge bands had a, a mode where they could go, you know, hard as fuck, and then they throw in an acoustic track. Uh, we were talking about Alice in Chains, two great semi-acoustic EPs. Uh, what is it? Jar Flies and uh, what's the Sap? Yes, right. Sap is the other one. Um, Sap was the first one, actually. Uh, it belies a sophistication um, in these bands that I think other bands weren't willing to to let in or let the public see. Uh, and and look, it it does take a, a pretty incredible talent to sell that. The, the line between Schmaltz and that is, is pretty pretty thin and stuff. But also in thinking about it, you know, the vibe of that song in particular is, is you know, I was saying Laurel Canyon, um, thinking more like this is what people would be up in the canyon, like hanging out making and stuff. But uh, it's got a little bit of a Papa Honey vibe. <laughs> right? And, and I feel like that maybe they were paying attention to them. Well, everyone should pay attention to Pablo Honey. Everyone <laughs> should. Pay we weren't going to get through this without a Pablo Honey take, were we? Jesus. No, no, of course we weren't. Of course we weren't. But no, I mean, there was. You know, you you look at the bands, and and I'm being serious here. You look at where Radiohead went from there, and and it's like all these bands discovered this template at around the same time, and then the bands that survived and the bands that thrived were the ones who like realized how much you can do with this template. And the bands that didn't ended up being like in the top ten on the radio all the time because we suck as humans. <laughs> but so how do we? How yeah, do I mean, we, it's like of the of the ones who made it out, you know, there's a reason that the ones you that folks still talk about and eulogized when they passed were Chris Cornell, yeah, Scott sure. Weiland, and then the one who's still kind of out there, Billy Corgan. Like they're the ones who actually managed <laughs> to play with the template long enough to uh, Chris, make some really memorable stuff that transcended the grunge genre. And, and Chris Cornell is an interesting uh, thing around this. You know, this is less about just Stone Temple Pilots, obviously, more about the grunge stuff. Uh, in that, I thought about talking about Soundgarden, but what would you say? <laughs> what the fuck would you say about it? Just like, fuck. There's, they're good. Yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, there's a lot of Led Zeppelin in there, too, actually. Mm -hmm. Fair um, point. Interestingly, one thing that I don't think we've talked about on mic, Kevin, or maybe even off mic, is that I keep forgetting that Miles Mosley recorded with Chris Cornell a bit. He did. He yeah. toured with him. Um, and 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 I think I went back on his social media at one point and found like he he posted like very moving things about Chris Cornell at the time of his passing. Um, and he was clearly a very influential to Miles Mosley, which is not something you would you would get from listening to to Miles. Well, or or Soundgarden, right? I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, consider and consider like the the common denominator here is that as abrasive as Soundgarden was, they they then went and did a song like Black Hole Sun, which like basically uh, synthesized psychedelia in a in a format that people who love pop could handle, and people had been acclimated to loud guitars by that point, so they were like, oh, that's what I think of as pop music, and here comes Black Hole Sun, and it's like, oh. Wait a minute, this is kind of trippy. What's going on? Uh, whereas Spoon Man wasn't a big hit off that album. Right. Spoon Man uh, is not a good and song. The we can say we can we can well, say Spoon we can Man say that now. Super Unknown has but, but, has has many, many but, important songs, and then there's it's probably like four uh, songs they, too but, long. 
Uh, I'll, I'll but they also too, man that's cool <laughs> <laughs> of course you will uh but they but they also like if you if you jump forward to the next album uh down on the upside which i prefer to super unknown for simply for a song like ty cobb where they seem to synthesize like their their ability to make these really complex dark pop songs and still have that weird scary edge there's a there's a song they did that was on the uh, pump up the volume soundtrack called heretic and I don't know what album it was <laughs> there, but it scared the fuck out of me forever. And it's just Chris Cornell like screaming the way he did, like screaming like, "What the heck? Burn at the stake!" <laughs> While they're just doing shit. Uh, but then you follow him through like Audio Slave, yeah. who sucked, <laughs> but were like so fucking popular, and and his solo career. And you saw that this guy was like, "Hey, I've always been here." He sort of took off his like like aggro suit and was like yeah i just write pop shit man uh it's good and this is this is what stone temple pilots i think did and that should be the legacy of that when you look back you're only going to grab a, a few of these bands yeah i i with stone temple pilots for me i for sure don't have a handle on like i don't know how i feel about the entirety of their career you know they're a band that that i'm 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 conscious of their music from when they were popular and then from when they weren't i you know i I um, was certainly always rooting for Scott Weiland to to figure his shit out and to kind of uh, reemerge as a compelling um, force in music. Um, but I don't know how to, you know, the 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 way we were just talking now of like the bands that figured out and the bands that didn't. I I th- I think I would put Stone Temple Pilots in the category of they did figure out how to how to be a band and how to be successful for long enough to 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 put out what they what they were able to. I I. But I don't have. But I, but I don't. I don't know that for a fact, and I I, I, don't, I don't quite know how to judge their like artistic success. I think it that. was really just that five year stretch or even four year stretch, ninety two to ninety six, where they put out the three albums we've been talking about right here. Because mm-hmm. if I recall correctly, they broke up after Tiny Music came out and after they toured on that and Velvet Revolver. That's when, and that's when Violent. That, well, there's an album called There's album the Star album. Well, they they broke up and then they got back together, and it's one of those things where you know I wouldn't swear to it, but I think it was more of those like one of those like cash grab get back togethers, and they did four, and then they did Shangri La Di Da, and oh. I don't think you're going to find a whole lot of people who will defend either of those albums. But right. Wyland also did Twelve Bar Blues in their so he was going yeah, off and right. doing his own thing and then he did the you know later bands that you guys have mentioned <laughs> that have been referenced before. so uh, <laughs> you know yeah he, he had a couple he himself had a couple of different directions i think stone temple pilots as a uh, shall we say an artistic entity had a short but productive life yeah, I, I just realized that the really Stone Temple Pilots has just changed addiction for normies. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, wait a minute, James Addiction was up in there, a band we also didn't yeah. talk about yeah. uh, in 500 episodes. But yeah, they they, they were just, uh, you know, very uh, middle of the road, but I, I think kind of important. Because uh, I'm not, like I said, I'm just not reaching back for any of the stuff that actually made it on the radio sort of post that time that was clearly influenced by these guys. Because everybody's like, they're the biggest, they're the best. If you told me now that the DeLeo brothers were like co-writing with Taylor Swift, like I, I would actually believe yeah. that. And, and I believe she would look back and be like, hey, maybe these guys know a thing or two. They're, yeah, they're I probably thought, I mean, not the only people who haven't guessed it on a table, table <laughs> at this point. <laughs>
Yes. I I think I think I would put this 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 might be a stupid thing to say. So so please please tell me that it is as soon as I'm done saying it. I feel like I would put Wyland's um vocal performance on plush like to me it is it is up there and as good as anything on 10 by Pearl Jam. Oh yeah. And even though it's like a massively yeah, I, more popular and more commercial song than a lot of although probably like seven songs off of 10 were number one singles. So maybe, maybe that doesn't make sense. But like, I, I, I just, I just feel like there's, there's such a, such an underrated aspect to like selling those long howling notes on the chorus. And everyone notices when Eddie Vedder holds a vowel for like 45 seconds, but, but Scott Weiland was pretty good at it too. Well, Scott Weiland could sing and, and Eddie Vedder succeeds to the idiosyncrasy of his voice. Yeah. Which is it's not a, it's not a put down on on, on any vetter at all. Um, very few people have that claim. You can hear them and they'd be like, "Oh shit, that's Eddie Vedder." Uh, but you can do that with Wyland, and, and the difference is that Wyland can move from uh, genre to genre to genre. Even when Eddie Vedder was just making ukulele songs, yeah, he, you can tell he was him. just like trying to bust Vet, out. Vedder's also just got the benefit of having the kind of voice that still works uh, even after you've chugged two bottles of wine on stage. So you know, <laughs> yes, it's, <laughs> yeah, that plays. Yeah, yeah. So. You know, Stone Temple Pilots, a fantastic pop band. We're going to now switch gears and talk about maybe the greatest pop band of all time. And uh, we're going to leave the 90s behind. We might come back here in, in a few minutes. But for now, uh, we're going to go a place that we have <laughs> have been maybe scared to go. Maybe we shouldn't go here. But it is important to go here because uh, this is uh, legit. Uh, anybody who knows me, one of my favorite bands. Here we go. How is that for a cliffhanger, kids? I, um, look, I said up front, this was, uh, I could not have planned this, uh, how this works out, how this resolves better. Um, and, uh, if you're wondering what the next band that we're going to be talking about is, the last band that we're going to be talking about is, I think if you know me, you can probably guess that pretty easily. I will tell you it's not Boston. Uh, and, uh, so, so get that out of your head, but it is, um, uh, maybe in the orbit of Boston. Uh, speaking of Boston, you know, we always got a lot of questions about the theme music here and, uh, I will, uh, again, just to keep it short, the show is bookended by a song called the launch and then a song called Holly Ann, both off an album called Boston's Third Stage. We did, uh, back in, I think, episode 400, uh, sort of a, a breakdown of that. Uh, well, we did it a lot. And, but for me, that album was the start of not just this podcast, but this site, because one day I was just looking at it and revealed to me that you could find joy in uh, every single part of music uh, if you just looked for it. Sure, it's ridiculous. Sure, it's uh, it's cheesy. Uh, some people might call it bad. I would say that that's just your tastes uh, because music is uh, is can be objectively good or bad, and that is uh, they put that together pretty well. So it's probably objectively good. Uh, a whole nother podcast for that discussion. But uh, but the point is is that uh, as long as you find um, 
something to love, something that makes you happy, something that makes your day a little better, then uh, then it's okay. And nobody can take that away from you, and nobody should tell you any any different. Uh, and uh, and so for me, that has been the thrust of this show. And uh, yeah, so that that's why Boston. That's why third stage. Uh, that's why I think everybody who's been on this show has a vinyl copy of third stage that I sent them. Uh, and uh, and you know people picked up on it pretty quick. And then uh, I am honestly humbled that they uh, they trusted me after they knew that. <laughs> so uh, that's enough about that. Uh, coming up is episode five hundred. And uh, it is a doozy. And like I said, I could not have planned this any better. Uh, for me, it is kind of perfect. Uh, hopefully it's good for you. And then we're going to just sort of fade off the, into the ether. So we'll talk to you in exactly one day. Until then, uh, stay safe, wear a mask, and uh, be good to yourself and, and your people. That's important. Talk to you soon. Kenobi! <laughs> 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 <laughs>